This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star and the forthcoming essay collection Sunshine State. She has also written two chapbooks, including her most recent BFF. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Bomb Magazine, and the Paris Review Daily. She lives and teaches writing in New York City. Gerard's novel, Binary Star, is a lyric tale told in a fragmented, poetic style. It primarily focuses on a female protagonist with severe eating disorders and her alcoholic boyfriend and their road trip across the country. We began with Gerard reading a section of the book. The novel skips around in time, follows two major storylines, and one of them is the story of the road trip that the protagonist takes with her long-distance alcoholic boyfriend, and the other is after the road trip back on Long Island when she's kind of alone in her house and and with herself and um, with her disease. So that's where this is. Belief is brittle. My skin is dry and brittle and cracked. I'm always bleeding, especially from the fingers. I do not believe that John loves me. There. I believe that John used to love me. I do without my body. I'm you. I'm me. I'm you. I'm me. I always end with you. Do you know what happened last night? I don't. The question is, what do I want in my center? The question is, what do I want? I blow smoke into myself. Do I want anything without John? I know what I don't want. I know some of what I don't want. I don't want to be heavy. I don't want to be a burden. If I believe in anything, lightness. I once thought you were a neutron star. I thought I was a neutron star. I could never be a neutron star. There is not enough of me to be a neutron star. A white dwarf is the final state of a star whose mass is too small to be a neutron star. We're confusing terms. A white dwarf no longer uses fusion. It's held together by degeneracy pressure, extreme pressure. This is the only thing supporting it against collapse. This is also the only thing that keeps it from exploding. A white dwarf depends only on density. A white dwarf isn't burning. It isn't doing anything productive. It doesn't matter that I'm not burning anymore. I haven't burned for a long time. I approach my natural state of being. Cold is my natural state of being. I grow dimmer every day. Lightness very much depends on will. I basically starved myself of will, of want, of whether and what I believe in happiness and being better, better. I was born without will. I was born with certain beliefs and sacrificed humility. I'm mostly devoid of feelings on purpose. Feeling is fleshy. Don't touch me. If you touch me, you have to hurt me. I don't want you to be afraid. What matters now that isn't? Get used to paint. Now when you paint, it is shapes overlaying each other. Transparency, reds, blues. I see through them all. John is mostly concerned with appearances. In this way, we're alike. In this way, we're destructive. We have only ever believed in appearances, even now. You have only ever believed in appearances. A white dwarf cannot exceed a certain mass. I reach a limit that my pressure can't sustain. You want me to be better? John wants me to be better. John doesn't want me to be better. John doesn't want to be better. John doesn't want me. Is that true? Let's stop. We're circling each other. So I, I guess I'd just say in the first place it wasn't um, like a, at, at first a conscious decision to write it in such a fragmented way, but I felt the, the velocity that builds when you use short lines and um, and the speed that it brings into the prose. And I also um, was really attracted to repetition for a couple of reasons. Uh in the first place, because the, the two of them, uh, these two characters, John and the unnamed protagonist, they're, they're both struggling with this compulsive behavior and just endless, endlessly repeating a cycle of addiction. And, um, and I, 
I wanted to kind of mirror that that destruction between them, but also I mean, in the sense that they're doing kind of the same thing, but that their diseases are complementary, uh, her anorexia and his alcoholism. But I also wanted to give, uh, uh, to kind of mirror um, the addictive cycle itself. So there's a lot of repetition. Um, and also the destruction that uh, that comes into an abusive relationship where you're kind of repeating the same behavior over and over again. And it's not always clear um, who is doing, you know, or who's, who's responsible for what, <laughs> I guess. I know that this book is semi-autobiographical biographical in the sense that you struggled with bulimia and anorexia and mm-hmm. you had a bad accident jumping off a train that sort of mm-hmm. set you on your path of recovery but did writing play a role in your life when you were sick yeah actually when I checked myself into rehab um, and I should say the second time I went to rehab um, when I actually began to get uh, better I brought my computer with me because I had begun writing a novel like that week, and I was really upset. They wouldn't let me bring my computer with me. They said, "No, that's not your focus right now." <laughs> but what about my novel? <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I've always been a writer. Um, I, I haven't always been a good or a serious writer, but I've always pedaled. After the accident, my my boyfriend and I moved back to Florida because we had to, um, and moved in together for the first time. We had this. Uh, one-room apartment that was infested with termites. Um, and I had, a, you know, like a desktop. I didn't have my laptop anymore for some reason. I don't know what happened to it. But I had this desktop computer that I think my parents had given to me, and uh, which was my first experience with trying to negotiate um, writing time with my partner. And because he really didn't understand. He would come out of, you know, I would be, I would work all day. He would work all day. We had crazy hours because we were working for the school system. And I would sit in the, the living room, which was the only space where I could I could close the door on it and keep him in our bedroom. And I would be very, well, I would try to be very isolated and really dedicated to finishing this novel that I was working on that was, again, autobiographical and about this train accident, which had just happened to me a couple of months beforehand, which um, now I know I can't really do that so quickly. But, but he would come out you know, once an hour on the hour and say, are you done yet? Are you done yet? And I would say, no, get, go away. <laughs> um, but it was a really, but I had to tell that story in order to, um, I couldn't tell it well, but I had to just tell it because it had been so, so traumatic. Um, uh, I couldn't work through all of the feelings yet, but I had to at least give some, some attention to the events, you know, what, you know, this first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And you no, know, this is, you know, the story is, is true, even if I don't know what it means yet. It's really happened to me, and I have to recognize that it was very impactful. I'm much better now, actually, about writing about my, my life events soon after they happen, um, but now I know that my feelings about them and my understanding of them change the longer I, the more distance I put between myself and the event. Because the story is so autobiographical, how did it affect your recovery as you were writing this, going deep into the psyche of a very sick woman? When I wrote the last word of this manuscript, I broke down in tears. It was very emotional um, because it's, you know, even while I was writing it, I was thinking, can I really show this to people? This is really embarrassing, you know? Um, and I still feel a lot of shame around it. Um, so at the time, I still felt a lot of shame around it. I don't so much anymore. But, uh, you know, there's really a stigma against women who struggle with anorexia and bulimia because it seems to be such a narcissistic, and it is such a narcissistic disease, you know, and um, a narcissistic woman is the worst thing to be um, in our society, you know, uh, to be 
shallow curiosity, you know. Um, but, you know, but because people fail to recognize there's a lot that underwrites that. I mean, uh, shallowness and the service is very, very painful to be a, a person struggling with, with that because you don't, you know, you really crave substance in your life um, and you think you can find validation this way, acceptance this way, um, and, you've, and, of course, you can't. It's very, very lonely. So, yeah, so, I, you know, it was it was very difficult to revisit a lot of those feelings and it can be really triggering to revisit the things that fuel your disease, like, you know, like pro-Anna websites and, you know, and like the diet pill aisle at Walgreens and stories about beach bodies or quick ways to lose weight. And I was never really afraid that I would relapse, but I did feel a lot of, I mean, I had to feel a lot of those familiar feelings and yeah, it's very upsetting, especially when you think you're at a good place in your recovery. It just, it goes to show that you can never get too comfortable with it, with your recovery. You can't take it for granted, you know. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star. Well, one of the things that interests me the most about eating disorders, and you were saying it is so much work and it makes people so tired to keep up with what they're trying to do to themselves. It's really tiring business. For you, you had this inciting incident, basically, when you were train hopping, you jumped off a train, you hit your face, and you needed multiple surgeries. And from what I've read, mm-hmm. that that did it for you. But what about people who don't have something like that? How do you think it is that they can get better or want to get better? Well, I mean, in 12-step recovery, we talk a lot about hitting bottom. And for me, that was my bottom. But, um, you know, but that person's bottom could be anywhere. You could say, I've been doing this or maintaining this disease for 20 years and nothing, you know, uh, I haven't recently experienced a huge consequence, but I'm emotionally depleted and that could be your bottom, you know, on the outside, your life could seem completely normal, uh, or normal by your standards, you know, but you could just be done with it. So, um, yeah. And I mean, and I should also say that like that, that my, the, the train accident didn't just turn off my disease, you know, it took. I mean, you said, like, years of surgery, multiple surgeries, um, the end of two relationships, two long-term relationships, uh, multiple moves uh, from apartment to apartment, multiple relapses, um, and a lot of, uh, you know, I had a lot of really difficult lessons to learn. Um, I still am learning today how to be humble, um, you know, uh, and, you know, and I also had to recognize that my own pain was uh, minuscule compared to the kinds of struggle that other people experience, you know, who didn't come from the kind of privilege that I come from. Um, I was raised in a white middle-class home in the suburbs, you know? So uh, I just can't imagine if I didn't have parents who could put me through rehab and pay for many surgeries, you know, if I didn't have parents who were so uh, patient and understanding about my recovery, uh, who didn't let me back into their house several times while I was recovering, you know, I, I might not be where I am today. So it has been a really long and humbling uh, journey. It could have, for me, begun at any point, um, and it happened to begin with this uh, really traumatic accident. Yeah, I saw when someone asked you in an interview, what are the three words that describe your book, one of them was white. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first of all, 
purity is a huge part of this story or the quest for purity, the impossible quest for purity. Um, and of course, you know, the white that we see in outer space, which is just pure light. Um, and I mean, but also this, this protagonist, uh, is, is a middle-class, uh, white girl, you know, and that's just, I mean, it's, Anorexia and bulimia um, are much, much more common among uh, white women than any other population. Yeah, so again, that color has multiple meanings for me with regards to that, to this book. Can you talk a little bit about this idea in writing that the narrator may be unreliable? Is the protagonist who's narrating this novel truthful? Well, I think you can trust that her that she's honest about the way she feels. Um, whether or not she's honest about the events of the story or who holds blame in a particular situation is a completely different ballgame. I mean, certainly John is not portrayed in the most attractive light, and that could have to do, and it does have to do with his behavior, with his real behavior, but it also has to do with her perception of him and her um her her response to his behavior so she you know she 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 nags him you know she really i think encourages his un- and enables him and and of course she does the same thing to her but um but we can't say oh you know John's just an asshole that's not really fair i mean so is she um i think if we could see if if we could see them both uh objectively um we might we might feel differently about the situation um, because, but you know, but, but because we're so close to her, uh, our sympathy really lies with her. It has to. So, yeah. So that's what I mean when I say like, you know, she's, this is, <laughs> this is the story in the first person. And, and for that reason alone, it's not, um, she's not reliable, but also because, you know, she is really sick. Um, we can't trust that her, you know, I mean, and she's very honest, but, you know, and so we can't trust that she's, rational at all times. Um, I mean, who is even when they're, you know, when they're psychologically well, but in her case, she's really bottoming out. So she rationalizes her own behavior in a way that is really terrifying at times. I think for a reader that builds actually deeper empathy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say, I mean, we can be on, or we can trust that she's honest about the way she feels and her own, you know, internal experience. Um, and not necessarily her, I mean, if we can even, if we can even really know what her, you know, what her external behavior is. Um, so, I mean, she lies to herself constantly. How can we, how can we, how can we trust that she's not lying to us? Um, and she says, I lie. Yeah, exactly. She's very forward about it, yeah. And so does he. Yes. I mean, sometimes you don't know who's saying I lie, but um, lying is inherent to those both of those diseases because you mm-hmm. have to protect, you know, your, your, your main ally is the disease, and so you could betray the rest of the world to make sure your mm-hmm. disease wins. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And at one time she says, I love this line, it's really simple, but she says, John is work. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot of work. I mean, another, you know, codependency is a lot of work. Her own disease is a lot of work. A, a relationship, even when it's healthy, is a lot of work. But she also likes that, you know. she I think she really is motivated by feeling um, over-responsible, um, overburdened. 
by her work, you know, her school work, and then her, you know, she's a TA, so that work, you know, the work of her disease, the work of her relationship, and the work of her partner's disease. It is a lot of work, constant work. Yeah, she says, she also says, I like to make myself a victim. I can be well when I want to. Well, that kind of implies that it's a choice, you know, so there's a lot that's in, that's embedded in that second line. Like, sure, it's your responsibility uh, to, um, to, recover, you know, um, or to begin your recovery. Um, but, uh, but it's certainly not her fault that she has this disease, you know? Um, so to say, uh, you know, I can do well when I want to, well, can't, you know, if you could, uh, wouldn't you, <laughs> I mean, she can, but can she right now on her own? What kind of agency do you really have, um, when you're trapped in this kind of cycle? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star. You had a Kickstarter website to fund a book tour, and one of the things you wanted to really do on your book tour was talk about these fundamental problems in our culture when you talk about women and food and body image mm-hmm. and things like that. So how did it go? I was really grateful to be able to do that, um, and I and I'm uh, grateful also that the people who um, were part of part of the events that I was doing uh, really keyed into that and asked a lot of important questions. I didn't really anticipate this being part of the tour, but it became a huge part of it. That um, a lot of people who came to the events, who were sitting in the audience, were people who were also in recovery um, or who were looking for some kind of push into recovery, and I got to talk to a lot of them, too. So do you think it's impossible to separate art from activism? And and I'm I'm specifically talking about your book. It's like on one hand you write this book, and it's poetic and beautiful and needs to stand on its own as art. But then when you go out to talk about it, you sort of bring the language down from this artistic mode to maybe a political realistic mode. Can you talk about that? You know, it's a very angry book and anger is a healthy emotion that can encourage people to conversate about things they would otherwise avoid. So no, I don't think, you know, um, this is not a happy story of anorexia and recovery. I didn't want it to be that. It didn't feel honest to me. So no, so no, I don't think it's possible to separate the two. And, um, you know, at the same time, I don't claim to be an expert, you know, and I, I would also not readily call myself an activist. I mean, I talk about things that bother me, <laughs> um, and I write about things that I think are really important and difficult, and I do that because it helps me to write. I don't really think it's useful as, a, as an artist to, to only talk about beliefs that you are firm in. I usually begin writing with a question, and uh, and... By the end of a piece of writing, I, I may have answered the question or I may have just generated more questions. But I also, you know, I also don't think it's useful as an artist or as somebody who's looking at art to come away from a piece of art with only one feeling about it. You know, like, oh, this is a happy story. Look, you can recover from anorexia. Happy, happy, happy. It's not true. Um, a lot of people don't recover from anorexia. A lot of people die. So yeah, so there was a lot of there's a lot of anger embedded in the story, and there are a lot of really um, difficult questions that come out of it, and that I continue to ask, and that I want my audience to continue to ask, and then answer, and then you know do their best as, uh, to answer them honestly um, by looking at real problems in our culture, you know, 
how we talk about women's bodies, you know, how we talk about um, success uh, or achievement. It's very different depending on, you know, uh, who, you know, what kind of population you're talking about. And then, uh, you know, the kinds of standards that we expect people to meet, um, in, you know, physically and uh, intellectually and, and professionally. Yeah, and the sort of objectifying way that we lump human beings and, uh, and commercial products in together, you know, as if people's bodies are just things to be bought and sold, which often they are. And that's not fair, and it's really uh, detrimental. You know, it's the very language we use to talk about human, human beings. The language itself is a tool to heal or abuse. Yeah, and you have a lot of that in your book in the terms of listing stars who your character wants to look like, celebrities mm-hmm. that your protagonist knows have eating disorders. And mm-hmm. then there's a lot of talk about sort of marketing of these magazines they have and how we market food in the aisles, but also mm-hmm. diet pills and pharmaceuticals, which seem to be such an easy over-the-counter fix or mm-hmm. uh, help for people in this disease. It's like a, it's like a super pill to get them going. Yeah, well, it keeps her awake. <laughs> First of all, well, I should say, one for me, um, it was a way for me to stay awake during the day also because I wasn't fueling myself with uh, food, um, you know. So I kind of used it for those purposes. I it, like they, it, I didn't have an appetite, uh, and I could be awake all day. <laughs> so... You know, but I mean, but I think I think that was actually. I mean, I didn't begin taking diet pills until a couple of months before I finally decided I needed to stop living this way or make an attempt to stop living this way. And I think it I think it actually catalyzed my my first crash. It's just not sustainable. It really, I was tired. I was angry. You know, I had no fingernails. My skin was dry. You know, and I felt completely lost because when you start to come down from those, I mean, for me, it was not just diet pills, it was also Adderall and caffeine and, you know, but like, you know, when you start to come down, it's such a miserable feeling. It's just the worst feeling I've ever had. So I had to keep, I had to be up, up, up all the time. And, you know, your your brain needs rest. Your body needs rest. And I couldn't, even when I wanted to sleep, couldn't sleep. I don't think I slept for weeks before I finally uh, called my parents and said, this is like, I'm dying, you know? Yeah. Um gross. I just hate it. I hate when I was, when I was writing the, uh, the, the second scene where she goes to Walgreens, you know, I went to like Walgreens website, like, okay, let's see what they have on the shelf now in the pharmaceutical aisle. And I just got so, ang- just so angry. Like, how did, how dare you do this to people? How dare you profit from it? How dare you market this as a thing that can help anyone? It's just infuriating. Can you tell me about your choice to go with this small independent press, $2 Radio? I had never heard of it, and I read about your book and hunted them down and wanted to interview you, but it's, you know, it's not a big press. Really, all of their books have a lot of success, but they're just a husband and wife team working out of Columbus, Ohio. They have a couple of um, part-time employees, I think, and uh, some volunteers, and they just really like um, boundary-pushing fiction, uh, and I knew that. I, I, I discovered them through uh, Carolina Slaviak's novel, um, How to Get Into the Twin Palms, and thought it was so cool, such a cool story, um, you know, in reading about them, discovered how cool they were, Eric and Elijah, at Tupal Radio. Um, and then I just consider, I read every single book they published after that until I sent them my own, and I loved them all. So, But, you know, I can't say that it was, uh, that it was my first choice. I knew when I began to send the book out to independent presses that they were the first 
my first choice, but, uh, but of course, every writer uh, would love to have financial success. So my first choice would have been to go with a literary agent and sell it to a large press. And knowing that I would probably fail, that was the first thing I did, um, was query agents. Uh, a lot of them said they really liked the book, um, but that they didn't know how to sell it or can I change it in, you know, this way that really would have, um, you know, it would have compromised my intention as an artist and that, that I couldn't live with myself if I did that. So, um, so I kind of exhausted that resource and then, and then sent it to $2 Radio. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star. Can we talk about, you know, what what influenced you? Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Um, yeah, so I was thinking about this question because I knew it would come up. And uh, I'm at my parents' house. You know, all of my books are in are in New York right now, um, but uh, but I did find a copy of Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, and this is a book that I read I reread every couple of years, so I'm just going to uh, read the first half of the first page. A story has no beginning or end. Arbitrarily, one chooses that moment of experience from which to look back or from which to look ahead. I say one chooses with the inaccurate pride of a professional writer who, when he has been seriously noted at all, has been praised for his technical ability. But do I, in fact, of my own will, choose that black-wet January night on the common in 1946, the sight of Henry Miles slanting across the wide river of rain, or did these images choose me? It is convenient, it is correct according to the rules of my craft to begin just there, but if I had believed that then in a god, I could also have believed in a hand plucking at my elbow, a suggestion, speak to him, he hasn't seen you yet. But why should I have spoken to him? If hate is not too large a term to use in relation to any human being, I hated Henry. I hated his wife, Sarah, too. And he, I suppose, came soon after the events of that evening to hate me, as he surely at times must have hated his wife and that other in whom in those days we were lucky not to believe. So this is a record of hate far more than of love, and if I come to say anything in favor of Henry and Sarah, I can be trusted. I am writing against the bias because it is my professional pride to prefer the near truth, even to the expression of my near hate. Um, so yeah, I read, I reread the end of the affair a couple of years. Uh, every time I read it, I come away with a completely different experience of it. I just think it's an endlessly meaningful book. There's a lot that is contained, uh, in tiny moments in this book. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and so many fully realized experiences and, and huge questions about faith and, uh, marriage and history and, and politics and the value of truth and the value of secrecy or a tendency towards secrecy, finding private spaces in one's life. Yeah, it's just a really excellent, excellent, nearly perfect novel. Can you yeah. read something that you wrote that um, might have been tricky to write or changed a lot or just something that you're really happy with? I, I wrote this short story back in, I think I finished it in 2012, it's one of the first uh, stories that I wrote that I actually, uh, of my own, that I actually liked, <laughs> short story that I wrote that I actually liked, um, and it's called Peaches, and I've, I sent it out um, a lot, 2012, and a couple of times, you know, I submitted it to contests, and it would get, like, second place or honorable mention or something, but, it never, but I've never been able to publish it. I've nearly published it a number of times, but recently, I, Columbia, a journal, decided they wanted it. Um, they asked me if I had anything that from them, and I said, well, I have this story that nobody really seems to want, <laughs> but they like it, and they're taking it. But I've always felt really attached to the first section of the story, and I think that was actually 
my um, that was my barrier to getting it published because um, after they kind of reworked it with me, uh, I realized it just contained too much exposition, you know? Like, the events of the story really didn't come, or, you know, like, the inciting incident didn't happen for, you know, a couple of pages, and it's not a very long story. So uh, I'm really glad that this happened. Um, so I'll just read the first the first section here. After Angela's accident, signs appeared everywhere warning park goers not to go near the water. We sat under a fiberglass turtle and watched the sun streak across the surface of the lake, touching the top of the orange cordon that circled it. Angela and Carly sat next to each other. I sat across from them. Who do you like? Angela asked me. Angela's brother was crossing the distant baseball diamond unhurried, smoking a cigarette. I thought he saw us, but he walked like he would have walked that way whether or not anyone was watching. James was in high school and had pierced his own ears. He wore his jeans tight, but they tugged all the way down his leg when he cocked his hip to the side. You mean like-like? Angela looked at Carly, then back at me. Lots of boys wanted to date Angela, but nobody had the guts to ask. Who would you let steal you up if, you were, if they were dared to? One name came to mind, but I said, no one. I had seen James on the porch smoking cigarettes and wondered whether Angela smoked too. Everyone assumed she did, and that made her seem mysterious and grown up in a way most of us couldn't comprehend. Years later, I saw her and Carly drinking beers in someone's car and thought about how time has a way of turning people into more of what they already are. I don't like anyone right now, I said. Bullshit, yes you do, said Angela. Yeah, who? James stopped a few paces from our turtle and looked us over while he dragged the rest of his cigarette down to the filter. He pulled a, pulled another from his pocket and used the first to light the second, tossing the first into the mulch. With a jerk of his chin, he told Angela to get up. It's only 4.30, she said. Dad wants to come early. Angela's dad was the ranger and had a concrete house by the entrance 50 yards from our school. I would see him on my way home, passing behind a window or driving his blue Toyota pickup full of branches or walking around the back of the public bathrooms with a wrench. None of us knew what happened to Angela's mother. James headed toward the house. Angela caught up and walked beside him, smoke clinging in a halo around her head and James's head. Or maybe that's just how the light fell through the trees that afternoon. Yeah, so when I first wrote this story, it had a lot of, you know, it's like, who is Angela and where did she come from? And, like, why is this narrator now hanging out with her instead of her, you know, haven't yet uh, hit puberty or begun to hit puberty? Um, and, yeah, it's just much better now that she's, you know, we begin the story with her new group of friends and we have the sense of her kind of belonging but mostly not yet. And then the story becomes, you know, becomes her own uh, kind of, the full realization of her adolescence, you know. By the end of the story, she's kind of squarely in the middle of it. And it's just, yeah, much much better now than it was before. Where do you write? Um, it depends on what I'm writing. I mostly write, right now, I mostly write on my couch, uh, in my coffee table. I live in a studio apartment, so my, and I'm married, so um, my husband <laughs> writes in the same room, which at times can be challenging, but at times very rewarding. But when I need to be alone, I lock myself in the bathroom. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't really ever get away from writing. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't really. I'm kind of going all the time. I consider kind of every every imaginative thought that I have kind of feeds into I never really let go of a story once I start it um, until it's completely done. I live, it becomes my entire experience. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband. And how have you dealt with rejection? I'm better at it now because I have the experience. I haven't been rejected a lot. It doesn't save me as much anymore. But um, when I first began uh, sending my work out, yeah, it was really difficult. And it kind of took me a few days every time I was rejected to get over that rejection. And what is your favorite word? Seashell. 
You've been listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.